0: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts.
1: We called ourselves a new York burst for that. After that, it was Len Zeppelin. He used to walk into the room... Father he used to walk in the room and say whether it was good or not, what I was playing, or show me something and say, okay, you know, keep trying at that.
2: And Peter had this great idea: no publicity. Keep people away. It's like being employed as a, a PR to keep the press away. <laughs>
3: welcome to the rock podcast we have a very special guest and an exclusive but first let me introduce Anita Gevinson hi, hi Danny. how you doing so instead of my talking about who we have
2: on since you know him why don't you do that part yes I do know this guy Our special guest today, CM Cushions, we call him Chad. Uh, I met Chad uh, 12 years ago, I believe, when uh, he interviewed me for the book he wrote about Warren Zevon, and unlike a lot of people that think they can write or uh think they have your best interests at heart uh i've been misquoted and misunderstood many times but that was not the case uh he did such a great job that we became friends and uh and then he let me know he was writing this book about john bonham and i'm like wow we're doing a podcast so here we are and i gotta tell you chad um the book is great uh I can safely say, uh, as a person who thought they knew a substantial amount about Led Zeppelin, I was amazed at the amount of research and the things that I uncovered. And it's just, it's a really great... Uh, Led up 101 uh, for anybody out there that wants to know about uh, anything about this band and specifically the life of the complicated amazing genius john bonham so congratulations well
0: thank you anita that was a really beautiful intro and thank you for all of your kind words i feel very lucky that we did stay in touch and stayed friends after uh, i had so much fun interviewing you Um, and i'm really appreciative for the feedback on this book i uh i started it pretty quickly after handing in the first draft of Warren's biography and it it had its own challenges but uh, this one took i think if it took about 3 years to put this one together but I had had an inkling that Zeppelin in some capacity might be the next topic. I'm so glad that everybody that you know on your show has liked it who's read it so far. That means a so, lot. So before we start, let's just
3: remind people um, that this is the news that we all heard back in 1980. The drummer was found dead in bed yesterday after a night of heavy drinking and hard rehearsal. An autopsy is set for today, but police feel that John Bonham may have died by
2: choking to death after vomiting in his sleep. The first major Led Zeppelin tour in three years had been set to begin in just a couple of weeks, but it appears to have been canceled now. And there is a question as to what Bonham's death will mean to the group. British DJ Nicky Horn. So many tragedies have befallen this band that I
3: I really think that this is the final, it must be the the end. But the record company will not speculate on the fate of the group. So let me ask you, how did you decide to do a book on John
0: Bonham? Well, I I would like to ask you the same question as well. I'm curious myself about your book. Uh, I'm a huge Zeppelin fan. I'm a tremendous Zeppelin fan, and I don't play favorites because you can't have a band like Zeppelin without the major contributions of all four members. I'm a huge fan of Plant's solo work, Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, all of them. But Bonham, to me, when I first heard Led Zeppelin's music, the drums hit me in, in, in a very visceral way, and I became a huge fan based on the sound of the drums, his playing, and how it was recorded and produced. Uh, but, and I wanted to kind of take on the challenge of writing about a member of an entire ensemble. Bonham has been spoken about and has appeared on so many different lists for, for rock drummers. He's usually at the top of it, but, uh, he's a personal hero of mine. Um, it it was, it was a, an opportunity to tell the Zeppelin story from a, a perspective that doesn't get... Uh, enough focus, I think. And that would be John's John's perspective, John's point of view. When you're doing a book like this, uh, where do you start? I, I was lucky that with this one, I was able to put out feelers for who I would uh, be able to speak with. I started gathering materials just for fun, reading about Zeppelin's history for fun while I was finishing up uh, the first draft of Warren's book. So... My starting point was to read as many books as as I could get my hands on that were readily available while I was still finishing another project. And really going back to archived reviews of of Zeppelin's original concerts and original uh, albums, because now there's so much uh, material that looks back on them retrospectively, which is still valuable, obviously. But when you see how the band was perceived in real time and go through the chronology of their original shows, the original tour, and if you go back and you look at the articles and how they were being perceived at the time, it tells you so much. I had a great time starting by reading about what the public and what critics thought of John Bonham before anybody knew he was going to become the legend that he is now. So the starting point was to kind of go in chronological order, reading materials, as they were published and to try and follow a narrative without knowing that they were going to become the legends that they are now in particularly him. Do you know how many uh, interviews you did? It came to, I I think it, I I have to double check, but I think it came to about 20, something like that. And is there some people that you didn't get that you wanted? Uh, Oh, I'll be honest, of course. The first person that I approached, and I know I'm going to be asked about this, the very first person that I wanted to get is Jason Bonham. He's an amazing drummer, amazing musician. I love the bands he's in now. Uh, so that was the first person that I contacted. Jason's management uh, had said that he he wished me best of luck and to, and to keep his dad's legacy alive, but he didn't want to go on the record, unfortunately.
1: He used to walk into the room, uh, with father, he used to walk in the room and say whether it was good or not, what I was playing, or me something and say okay you know keep trying at that but he never actually sat down and rudiments on all this uh, stuff he just like came in and said you know if you can make a 4-4
0: straight rhythm sound exciting then anything you throw in afterwards is going to be good. It would have been great to talk with the band members themselves Robert Plant, at one point uh, I was told was on the fence 50-50 that I might have been able to obtain him but it wasn't just a Zeppelin story so uh, when I got disappointed about that I wanted to speak with musicians that knew him Prior, And so I was able to get a lot of my focus there. Guys that had uh, played with him, jammed with him before Zeppelin was even an entity. And that ended up being very valuable because John's story starts... You know, quite in advance of 1969. That's what I think hadn't been covered enough. Let's speak to now, uh, Mr. John Bonham, who's
1: drums, timpani, and backing vocal. Hello, John. Hello. (laughs) So glad you can make it along. Um, What uh, sort of things were you doing before Led Zeppelin was formed? Um, Nothing really. I just played with Tim Rose for Mm -hmm. about um, two months before joining Led Zeppelin. But Mm -hmm. before that, nothing sort of worth mentioning.
0: Tim Rose was where he got scouted. He was playing that gig uh, for a couple of months and and was at a Tim Rose uh, performance when Jimmy Page actually showed up with Peter Grant to kind of uh, scout him for, you know, soon to be called Led Zeppelin. they were still the New Yardbirds. But uh, Bonham had, had had a... Uh, an affinity for the drum since he was a child, largely self-taught and also an amazing listener. Many of his biggest heroes as a kid were big band drummers and jazz drummers, which I thought was fantastic because I'm a big, jazz buff uh myself i play piano but jazz music is a big thing to me gene krupa and and buddy rich right those are the two big ones you got it and and it's funny because that that interest did stay with him over the years i I was told that he would you know pay attention to you know what people like uh, billy cobham and tony williams were up to in uh, the late 60s and 70s you know where jazz drumming evolved too Uh, So I think John always had a huge fascination and and an appreciation for jazz percussion. It never went away. But he did play with his first bands starting when he was still a teenager. Uh, The Blue Star Trio was one of the earliest ones. Uh, It came to about a dozen before the New Yardbirds became his full-time job but largely self-taught uh he did have a couple of mentors as a kid and one of them was a gentleman i got to speak with named gary alcott in, in uh, who's still in birmingham he's a, a jazz drummer still in his 70s still touring so he knew john when john was about 16 17 years old and taught him some things paradiddles and some of the earliest stuff
2: so he did he did the construction job though his father <laughs> yeah but and and he worked uh as a laborer while mm-hmm. he was playing in bands uh, for a pretty long time i mean he was 16 and he was still working construction and he no, and, a part there was a part of him that actually liked that cuz he was making a living and then he hadn't met his wife yet but then he soon met, he hadn't met pat yet, yeah then he soon meets pat and then he's got a child and now he's got to keep working but he wasn't one of those guys that refused to do any job that wasn't Music.
0: The thing that's interesting is that the the guys from Zeppelin, I think this might apply to perhaps all four of them in particular, Page and Plant. They loved real blues musicians, the real early stuff, Robert Johnson, real Delta Blues. They were huge aficionados of that. And that music, of course, comes out of uh, poverty and and traveling musicians to go where the work would take you. But the thing that's interesting about the members of Zeppelin is that they weren't particularly poverty-stricken when they were kids themselves. Uh, They came from from middle class or or not completely well-off, but comfortable upbringings as kids. They just loved the music. And Bonham's Grandfather had founded this very successful construction company in Birmingham that had lasted a few generations already. And it was kind of an unspoken thing that John would probably take it over at some point. He had, he had a younger brother, Mick, and they both worked on those construction sites. Their first job was helping Dad. I think the camaraderie of working together, because it was a family business and, and working with Dad, and John actually had a certain amount of skill with it, would use some of those skill sets from the construction site when he would build. Uh, You know speaker cabinets and do modifications to his drum sets and before his passing not that not that far in advance of his passing he actually had started to bring back the construction business when zeppelin was not touring during those gaps they brought back their father's business and started to rebuild homes i think there was uh, some serious sense of normalcy in being part of a family business with his brother and with his father. And there was a comfort level of of always being home when he could of the four members, uh, John Paul Jones, I think would, would be happy staying at home as well, but Bonham was not a fan of touring. And I think in many ways, his first job in the construction business, working with dad, working with his brother, I think that that had a sense of home to him because he would dip back into it his whole life
2: reading through the book, and I'm thinking to myself, man, why didn't anybody plan it better? And then I started realizing there was no blueprint for this. They were doing this stuff, the touring and the writing and the recording, and and they were making it up. They were inventing it, is what they were doing. So, you know, but, but even having said that, um, their managers, they were well, especially Peter Grant. I mean, I know there were some pros to what he did and mm-hmm. what he wouldn't allow. And if you want to go over some of those odd things, I know that they 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 wouldn't do this Ed Sullivan show, correct?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, television okay. was was off the list for the most part. Yeah, they wanted people to have to go see them in person.
2: Okay, um, yep. in hindsight, mm, I, you know, worked out, <laughs> but you know what? And no singles. No not same they same. could not release singles, right? Mm -hmm. It's
0: well, there's so much included in what your overall observation is with that, Anita. That's true. They were trailblazers in so many ways. You have to remember the Beatles, and, and you had brought this up in conversation, you and I talked about this. Uh, the Beatles, you know, they did Shea, and they stopped touring because they couldn't hear their own instruments, and then they inadvertently became these incredible self-producers and innovators in the studio because it was just a, it was their preference over having screaming crowd. And the Rolling Stones had played a couple of tremendous venues already, but Led Zeppelin, because of the demand that they mandated because they weren't on television because their film the song remains the same wasn't released until many years later and because there weren't singles the idea of the concept album which people gravitated towards a full lp with zeppelin every album became a concept album because you had to have the lp so you had to take it as one great you know cohesive unit which was brilliant that the marketing dictated you accept the full album and because you had to go see them in person they inadvertently uh, really were the first major band that you could consider arena rock. Nobody had the same amount. I mean, there was Cream, The Who. There were huge bands. There were The Stones. But Zeppelin's uh, strategy, especially uh, Jimmy Page and Peter Grant, the way that they had constructed full ownership and the marketing strategy behind the artistry, it was both, and you know, it's not to take anything away from the music, because they're artists, but the marketing that, that they had it um it was unprecedented and there was no blueprint for the type of fame and what they got away you're absolutely
3: right about the publicity thing because yeah, I've talked, yeah to, I've talked to bill harry i don't know mm-hmm. if you know who he is okay, <laughs> okay. And, and bill <laughs> yes, bill so just so you know he came, he, he came out of the mercy beat uh, area he knew the beatles and he was just connected with everybody so when your yeah. grand was looking for a pr guy bill harry had already moved to london and but he told me, he said, you know, I, I can't believe it. They, they hired me to
2: to be the publicist to keep the press away. Peter Grant wanted me to take over the publicity for his uh, band, which he called at the time the New Yardbirds. And Peter had this great idea. No publicity. Keep people away. It's like being employed as a, a PR to keep the press away, which created this amazing sort of image.
3: That's an awesome point. Yeah, that's... um, But let me ask you something else I wanted to clarify. love your opinion. What is it about the Midlands, Birmingham, that area? I mean, I talked to Glenn Hughes, and he Mm -hmm. said, you know, it's like the the hard rock capital of the world, all the people that came out of there.
4: You know, and once again, this is... We, you know, Robert and I and John and and Ozzy and Tony Iommi and Geezer and Rob Halford were all born in this part of the world. For all intents and purposes, it's the birthplace of Hard Rock in the UK. Um, and you know, um, Black Country Woman, sure, Black Country Communion. It's it's a thread. If you want, you know, we're not uh, taking from Zep. We love Zep. We, we're part of Zep in the in the family with Jason
0: in the band. Uh, we're all we're all really uh, uh, joined at the hip. They're all from that area. There's a huge music culture that takes place there. And I think part of it, this was summed up one of the, one of my favorite, I don't play favorites, but one of the most entertaining interviews that I had gotten was with a a man named Jim Simpson. And Jim Simpson owns a a blues and rock club in, in the Midlands currently. And is a musician, he was with locomotive, one of the early bands that Bonham was in, and he is a music producer as well. So he produced John before zeppelin was a thing and then jim was also one of the earliest managers for black sabbath before they took off and i got to speak with uh jim who's a really cool funny fascinating dude who's also a huge jazz fan as well and a a jazz musician He's, he's a trumpeter but the way that he had described it when we were talking is that there you have very few options if you are from that area. The Midlands in general, Birmingham or, or Brum as, as it's referred to, is a very big industrial city, but it also has a bustling music culture. So you have these two things. If you're interested in not spending the rest of your life in some form of manual labor, well, I don't know if it's that way now, but at the time, we're talking about the 50s and 60s after World War II. If you were uh, the children of of, of you know, the soldiers who had fought in World War II, that age bracket, baby boomer age, although in the UK. It, you had two options. You could either join the manual labor force, which would be working in the factories over there, and, or the construction business, which Bond's family had or if you really wanted to be a musician you had a lot of music clubs but there's almost like uh, an angst and an industrial sound to how the music was approached through all the bands that you had named and I think John's style of playing I don't know if Zeppelin itself would be described it the same way, but his style of drumming has that big, heavy, almost industrial sound, which is like, the sound of his drums is is is, uh, is his way of articulating, I think, those types of feelings. Tell us the story now
3: of how John got spotted by Jimmy Page and oh, got in the band. Give me the, the, the genesis of that. I'd love movie. to.
0: John had been in... Uh, uh, he had been friends with Robert Plant for a number of years already. They were buddies. They were from similar areas, and they, and they were... Uh, not childhood friends, but they were older teenagers when they started to hang out. And they were in a, a, a number of separate bands and then they were in and they had jammed together with different groups. And they eventually, it, the funny thing is anybody that played with would, would either disband or you would stop getting engaged in some capacity. It was so loud. The way, you know, clubs couldn't handle his sound. So that's one of the reasons that he kind of really padded to different bands. It wasn't necessarily his fault. It was just the sound, it was the sound of his drums. Both he and Plant stayed in touch. They were buddies. But they ended up pl- performing in multiple different bands. They went their separate ways. Plant was scouted by Jimmy Page first. Page had gotten he had. It, it is a long story that some people, most people, do know how he had kind of risen in the ranks to ownership of the new, of the Yardbirds and wanted to have the new Yardbirds. That would be the new band. They already had a tour for Scandinavia. Alt and the rest of the members of the Yardbirds had already left, so it was just Paige. He had to fill in every other member of the band, so he got to create the band he wanted.
1: Our first tour together actually with the band was in Scandinavia. In fact, it acted as a warm-up tour to the British clubs. But, curiously enough, that was an old commitment on, that the Yardbirds had to fulfill. And so we called ourselves a new Yardbirds for that. After that, it was Led Zeppelin.
0: When he, he got Robert Plant as his singer, and the last piece of the puzzle that they needed was a drummer, and they wanted someone who had some of the versatility of, say, Ginger Baker, or Mitch Mitchell. And as soon as, as Paige and Plant started to discuss their, their joint love of blues and the versatility of what they would be able to do in the studio, Plant's thoughts immediately was, I have a friend that you have to see. This is there's the one person who is going for the heavy sound that you want, and that we, you know, that you would you would be able to get in the vision of what you're looking for with the new Yardbirds. So it was Plant who knew that. That John was playing with Tim Rose on tour and, and took Paige and Peter Grant to that gig in order to see him play and they immediately after the show started to discuss how to, how to take him from Tim Rose's touring band. We, we want him. But that's how it was. It was Plant who did it. Okay, let me ask you a question because I, I, sure. when I was researching my
3: book, mm-hmm. uh, Anita and, and I just got done talking to the author of a Yardbirds book.
0: Yeah, so that's awesome. I, yeah Chris Dreja. You didn't speak to him, did you? No, but, uh, he's mentioned very prominently within the book. He's given interviews about, about, about working with John. Okay. Cause he, yeah, no cl- he
3: not claims. I mean, I believe him. No, I want to hear this. Yeah. He went with Peter Grant and Jimmy page because mm-hmm. he was technically still the bass player. He hadn't quit yet completely. And right. John Paul Jones hadn't been hired yet. Right. So the three of them went to scout John Bonham, And Robert Plant. Uh, And according to Chris, Jimmy was all set on Bonham. Bonham, absolutely a must-have, this guy. Mm -hmm. But he thought that Robert Plant, I'm not too sure.
1: Well... uh... When the Yardbirds kind of burnt out from intensive touring back in the late 60s, I'd already decided I want to follow my other passion, which was photography. So I had that all lined up and I came to New York, etc. But I was very, very friendly with both Peter and Jimmy. So on a couple of occasions, I accompanied accompanied them on to to see guys that Jimmy may have wanted or not wanted to go into the the band he was forming. I remember going up to uh, somewhere outside of Birmingham, seeing the amazing John Bonham who was linked to of course Robert Plant and on the way back you know John Bonham was an absolute must-have little iffy about Robert he did eventually make it very well in fact but uh, that was an
0: interesting moment it's, there's a couple of people that have said that where even after the first few, their first their legendary first jam session where they knew that there was just this this alchemy of sound from what different people have said over the years behind closed doors Jimmy and Peter they they stayed on the fence about Robert Plant's participation for the you know that first tour. It was undecided if he was going to be the member that was going to last. Because if you go back, as I said, the original reviews, if you look at them, now it's almost it is actually laughable because Plant arguably has had the most successful solo career. And he's worked in multiple genres. He's one of my favorite vocalists. But his style, his vocal style, got a lot of criticism during Zeppelin's earliest gigs. If you look at the reviews, it's it's actually it, it's fascinating that critics didn't necessarily get his, you know, his octave range and his, you know, his overall visual look and the androgyny of it, which became a thing for so many artists. But it, there, there was uh, there was talk early on that Plant, if any member was going to not be there anymore, it was going to be Robert. Well, when it comes to, to Bonham, there's there's jokes about even in Birmingham. He, he one of his side gigs as a kid. Uh, he'd work for his father, then he would get father, uh, you know, fired by his father, and then get rehired, and then you know, as the boss's son. But one of the jobs that he did have uh, when he was about seventeen, eighteen years old, is he worked at a a fine suit store uh, in Birmingham, to actually, as, for a tailor. And you, it's it's tough to imagine that, but he did, and he got discounts on suits, and, and he would dress up uh in his own style after especially when he would see the drummers that he loved on television starting to show the progressive style of the late 60s the mod style starting to evolve into hippie culture again ginger baker and and especially mitch mitchell
2: keith moon oh oh my god keith moon a huge one Mm -hmm. these guys were trendsetters uh especially uh robert plant and jimmy page they had so many girlfriends they had girlfriends who became famous just because mm-hmm. they were their girlfriends at the time sure. and uh of course the kate hudson character is based in um oh, famous. Lane. Yeah. based on a couple of his girlfriends and the whole but john bonham his love affair with patricia with pat yeah. his wife was just one of those amazing things where he he literally could not go on without her that that was basically i think why he had so many problems on the road he was just Mm -hmm. he would drink too much he was so unhappy
0: i i'll be honest i'm really glad that you brought that up because this was one of the early concerns that i would have because i try and be as objective as possible and i don't like to omit material when it's very important i was actually very very pleasantly surprised that john bonham's activities on the road didn't include any, anything that was really outside of his marriage. If, if you get to the core of it, you know, he was known as the hotel room destroyer. All right. Yes. Very heavy drinker, which was something that goes back to his, you know, his, his, his childhood friendships with people. That was, a, that was a cultural thing, but his love of Pat, I think was one of the driving forces of why he wanted to be successful. Uh, it was love at first sight with the two of them. They had a very happy marriage and, jason and zoe's mother and and you know she was really good for him she was home to him from from everything that's what it points to he wanted to offer her stability which is why it came down to whether he would even stick with drumming. he had promised her he wouldn't unless he'd get a stable gig or take up his father's offer to take over the construction business john's uh, behavior on the road and i was told this by a number of people that were that were there uh it was a certain amount of discontent from being away from his family and, and the familiar surroundings for so long. He, he was kind of a wreck without Pat for such long periods of time. I liked knowing that about him. It felt better to write about someone where you could relate to those, you know, not necessarily superhuman on stage qualities, but the human qualities about it. And that was probably one of the most beautiful things about him that I had, that I had heard, his loyalty to her. Which, so, uh,
3: which uh, behind the scenes people? Did you get a chance to, to talk with
0: the most enjoyable interviews that I had ta- that I had gotten with anyone affiliated with Swan Song? There were two that I, I really enjoyed a lot. And I have to give a shout out because they're just great guys. Danny Goldberg, who uh, is uh, a, a very, very legendary music uh, manager for, for decades at this point, because Danny, when he was in his 20s, he had worked PR for for Swan Song. I'm sorry, before it was known as Swan Song, but he was then scouted to be the vice president uh, by Peter Grant, who he still refers to as as his mentor. Danny is an awesome person and was helpful in major ways with both books that I've done. And he had great stories about being on the road with Zeppelin. And thanks to him, I was able to get... uh, Neil Preston, their official photographer, as, who had great stories of being on the road, 1975 in particular, uh, being with the band. Those were, those were two big, long, longer interviews that were part of the book. So you know about Danny's famous,
3: uh, you know, Bigger Than the Beatles comment? Oh,
0: oh the, uh, uh, was, that was the newspaper headline, as I recall, right? Well, the
4: first two shows of the 1973 Led Zeppelin tour were were outdoor stadiums. Um, most of the shows were in arenas, but the first two were in stadiums. First one was at Atlanta Stadium, and the second one was Tampa Stadium. Tampa had a capacity, a paid capacity of fifty six thousand eight hundred, which was slightly more than what Shea Stadium had sold when the Beatles had played there some years earlier. So I invented the idea that this had broken the Beatles' record for the best show by an artist. And of course the Beatles, if if Shea Stadium had held more seats, they could have sold more tickets. It wasn't that Led Zeppelin was actually more popular in 1973 than the Beatles had been in 1965, but it so happened that Tampa Stadium held about 1,000 more seats So, uh, you know, because I knew the critics were not going to say the music was great. Not then, not in 1973. And so that became kind of the big selling point, was bigger than the Beatles. And, in fact, when I saw the Led Zeppelin reunion show in London, they showed a little videotape, which I guess is included on the DVD uh, re-release of "Song Remains the Same, from a Tampa TV station where the guy was kind of reading the talking points from my press release, but bigger than the Beatles, you know. So I felt this uh, corny... A gimmick uh, it must have appealed to the band since they were still using it thirty uh, some years later.
0: Danny tells a story better, obviously, than anybody, but he also has an awesome sense of humor and a great memory, which is perfect for someone affiliated with rock history. But what what I enjoyed also is when Peter Grant had told Danny when they, when Zeppelin played at uh, Atlanta, sold out, packed house. Someone needs to say that, you know, this is the biggest thing since Gone with the Wind. You know, the biggest thing in Atlanta since Gone with the Wind. He, and he asked Peter Grant, do, do you want me to say that you said that? No, someone has to say that. So Danny had to attribute the Peter Grant's quote to someone and got permission from the mayor of Atlanta that he could attribute it to him. It shows how grandiose, the, you know, the, the power was with Zeppelin's hold over how they how they ran the media. But at the same time... I liked that there was such loyalty in how the strategy worked between Grant and his musicians. Danny was able to fill in a lot of uh, gaps in trying to understand Grant's love of, of Paige and what he saw in him when he was representing him.
3: Okay, so let me ask you. Uh, obviously, you sure. talked to a lot of uh, other musicians, and we do that too. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think just about every drummer we have on, we ask him about uh, Bonham. So, uh, you know, tell me who you've spoken to because uh, one of the people we talked to, and I'm, I'm going you're going to hear from them, is uh, talking about Bonham and Zeppelin in general. Uh, one of the that comes to mind was Roger Earl, who's still today in Foghat. And yeah. it was in Savoy Brown, which was a contemporary of Led Zeppelin, part of that whole blues, you know, Savoy Brown, Fleetwood Mac, they were fans. Zeppelin, that whole thing.
0: Zeppelin went to go see them, went to go see some of their gigs when they were on tour, when they be in the same cities. Absolutely. They were big fans of their of their work. Roger yeah. says that, I mean, Zeppelin was just awesome and, and
3: Bonham was was awesome. Now, Led Zeppelin were very much their own band. Jimmy's playing was incredible. His rhythm playing and the riffs that he came up with. Robert Plant was a great singer and a unique singer. John Paul Jones is probably one of the greatest bass players ever. And I don't think I could ever ever say enough about how John Bonham played and like what he did to rock and roll music. All of them were great musicians. Yeah, they were totally unique. They had a whole different approach. They had a a whole different attitude uh, and power to playing the other bands at that era didn't even think about their music and the, the, their interpretation of other people's songs was like unique and gave them, uh, you
1: know, gave them a huge place in like you know rock and roll history.
0: It's it's cool talking with drummers who who put Bonham on that shelf because they're able to break down what it is about the playing that affected them the most. The, the drummer who I, I had probably the most fun speaking with because I've been a fan for years, but their, their paths only crossed one time. They weren't necessarily contemporaries because it's, it's Stuart Copeland They're, uh You know, the police were up and coming in the late seventies and Bonham, for all the competitive edge that he had when it came to his contemporaries, you know, musicians had that, you know, this, this playful competition. Bonham was actually really kind to younger musicians and was a big advocate for the, the up and coming bands that were, that were, you know, following in their footsteps. He loved the police. He took Jason and he took his sister, Deborah to go see a police cape when they were, when they were uh, in Birmingham and told Stuart Copeland, who was, I think 19, 20 years old at the time, you're the guys that are going to knock us off, off the charts, which is a huge thing for, for a young musician to, to hear. Uh, but Stuart Copeland was uh, one of my favorite interviews that I got to do because he not only told me what he loved about John's style, but also how it deviates from what his influences were. Uh, John's influences, meaning jazz and, and breaking it down. Led Zeppelin had a
3: love-hate relationship with the press. You want to address that? I think the only press person that they had a good relationship with was Chris Welch who was the editor of Melody Maker and in fact he went on a number of gigs the band would bring him on the on the on tour when they played Carnegie Hall He was there, telling me how how Bonham just went nuts because uh, he knew that Gene Krupa had played there.
0: My first ever trip to
1: America was with Led Zeppelin. But the concert I was going to see was actually Led Zeppelin at Carnegie Hall, New York City, in October 1969. And that was a very historic event, very exciting for everybody concerned, really. The audience reaction really surprised me because... Back in England in those days, English fans were quite subdued or reserved, as you might expect. (laughs) They wouldn't be screaming and shouting and hooting and uh, jumping on the stage and shaking hands with uh, with the artists, which is what happened at Carnegie Hall. I remember John Bonham saying that he, he wanted to be really good that night because th- that was where Gene Krupa used to play, the famous dra- uh, jazz
0: drummer, used to play at Carnegie Hall. And he remembered all those records, and uh, he wanted to be on good form. So he played incredibly well that night. That tells you a lot, I think, that that he was still so starstruck being in the, in this arena where where one of his own heroes had played. Yeah, Zeppelin did have a uh, a, a love-hate relationship with the press, and I think it's because... It's difficult. This is what's interesting. I, they did not, They, especially in the early years, they did not get the most favorable press. There were some scathing, not across the board, they got a lot of good write-ups, but there were some, some negative comments about their heavy approach, in particular how they utilized a lot of blues music without the proper citations. But they got called on it. Rolling Stone was not happy when they noticed that Zeppelin was doing that. They were criticizing... Well, every aspect of of uh, Zeppelin's visuals, you know, you know, how how their performance on stage. Then, when word would get around to their behavior within the hotels, how much money they were getting for each gig. What well, you know, Peter Grant's um, very very strong tactics in securing the money for each one of these gigs. His you know these relationships with the promoters. If you add all of that up, there was negative press at the beginning. Zeppelin, they were kids. They were sent. You wouldn't think of them this way, but they were sensitive at the time. And Jimmy was, you know, as a session player and as a member of the Yardbirds, he had traveled more than any of them. And he kind of, I think, knew that that was probably coming, and so did Peter Grant. And the solution was to kind of get as much control over the media as possible and to be as closed off as they could be to unsolicited reviews, photography and things like that. And, and I, I have to say this if, if it's okay, it still happens. It's I you know, this is the first album just, you know, it surpassed its 50 year anniversary of Zeppelin one. I'm doing, you know, I did a book on John Bonham. I'm generationally removed from, from when these guys were still touring and still putting out albums You mentioned uh, Richard Cole, who's the legendary road manager Mm -hmm. uh,
3: for Led Zeppelin and also
0: the inspiration for Hammer of the Gods and i will say this one of one of uh one of the things that i did and and i, and I do want to make this clear because i tried to get as many people from zeppelin as possible i didn't think i'd be able to get the original band members because they still have mandates about talking to the press and they also had their 50th anniversary book coming out which jimmy page had said this is this this is the official you know like he put out the Le zeppelin grimoire which is supposed to be you know this this is the dogma of the story of the band so they wouldn't have to talk with press anymore. I think that was one of the reasons. But what I did do is I tried to uh, contact and interview as many of their biographers as possible. For example, if I, can, if, if I may list that, uh, Chris Alwitz is one of my favorite music journalists. And he did this incredible definitive book on Joe Strummer years ago. And then in 2019, did this big, beautiful, thick biography, the defin- what is billed as the definitive biography of Jimmy Page. The reason I bring this up is because Mark Blake, I've been a fan of Mark Blake as a music writer since I'm in high school. And just a few years ago, he did the authorized biography of Peter Grant. And he worked with Grant's son, uh, Warren Grant, in order to put that out. Speaking with them and, and filling in the context of the relationships. I, I, I tried to, put into con- what I try to do is put into context their relationships with each other with the press and also kind of demystify some of the things that Cole had said publicly in books like his own and Hammer of the Gods because as you remember a lot of a lot of the legends a lot of the legendary type stories about Zeppelin and their behavior on the road stems from Hammer of the Gods 1985 and One
3: thing I remember about Richard Cole, because I I did have a chance to speak with him, um, and he had worked for Vanilla Fudge before Zeppelin, and he'd worked for Peter Grant for a while, so he had seen just about everybody. Even he was blown away by John Bonham and couldn't believe that they found this guy. The tour was
1: paid for, underwritten by Jimmy Page, Peter Grant, and John Paul Jones. The other two, Bonham and Plant, were on salaries. There was five shows with the Vanilla Fudge. It was actually in the one in uh, Oregon where I really realised uh, during the drum solo. And I was standing there with Jonesy, and I just said to him, Jesus Christ, "Where'd you find this
0: guy?" Yeah, that's uh, they actually connected. Uh, I think I think Bonham and Cole also connected because they were. Uh, what? I think Richard Cole also was a, a, a drummer. Even uh, as a, a hobbyist drummer, which is not to downplay his, his musical abilities, but when he was uh, a kid, I know that he had played the drums and connected with John, and, and they had some of the same favorites, a lot of the, the jazz guys that we had listed, Cooper and, and Buddy Rich, and they got along very, very well.
3: Now, the, the fact that—let me just go back a minute. The fact that uh, sure. Bonham, uh, that Jimmy Page chose Bonham yeah. to be the drummer— Uh, was sort of in keeping with uh, it's actually Jerry Wexler who signed the band to Atlantic Atlantic yeah he had a a, a thing that he lived by and that was only sign musicians who are virtuoso musicians because all they want to do is play with other musicians of of that caliber and so he spotted Bonham as being the greatest so when Wexler Uh, Said that, you know, signed Zeppelin. He knew that everybody else in the band was going to be great. And he thought there was almost no risk. Phil Carson, who was an executive
1: up at Atlantic Records, told me the Jerry Wexler story. Jerry was very aware of what was happening in England uh, and he, he became very cognizant of, of the great players that there were in England. And one of the players he knew about was, was Jimmy Page. And he heard that Jimmy Page was putting a group together which was going to be called the New Yardbirds and he got on the case immediately. He wanted to have the group that Jimmy Page was in. Jerry had a and philosophy, which is how I kind of lived my life by his philosophy after he taught it to me which was that you should never sign a band unless there's a virtuoso musician in it and he wanted this group called the new yardbirds because he knew there was a virtuoso musician uh his philosophy came from the fact that he felt that a virtuoso musician doesn't play with good musicians good musicians he only plays with great musicians so if you can find a, a group that's got a virtuoso in it, rush after it because they're going to be surrounded by other great people. I believe that he signed the new Yardbirds, which of course later became Led Zeppelin, uh, before he heard a note of music. I think he had he had the meeting with uh, Peter Grant, the manager of um, The New Yarnbirds, as it initially was, and Steve Weiss, the attorney. And I think he made that deal without hearing anything that the group
0: were going to play, because that's how much he believed in Jimmy Page. Think of all the artists that were on Atlantic at the time. The idea that Zeppelin was signed. Well, Zion Butterfly, Vanilla Fudge, they were the cream. They were, you know, that was...
3: That was Atco, but it was part of Atlantic. But I believe, and you can tell me if I'm correct on this, that Zeppelin uh, had it in their contract that they wanted. Oh, yeah. It had to be on Atlantic because so you they are were correct. such huge fans of Ray Charles and all the early stuff, and they wouldn't.
2: Aretha, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they weren't they going for the Atco.
0: The, nope it was it, like. was it was the prestige. It made them right. a premier band. It, it was contractual. Denny's correct. Yeah, that was a, it was a negotiating tactic that Jimmy had mandated and Peter Grant made sure that he was able to deliver it
2: wow there's so many great stories in the book that the, the uh peter grant bill graham showdown uh, mm-hmm. just every there's just so many uh we we should mention the name of the book is called the beast yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, i mentioned who our guest is yes yeah, cm cushions right. you know your book is coming out in september, september correct september 7th yeah it's coming but, out. but now shown. you can do a um you can do pre-sale right you can do pre-order for this book
0: it is up for pre-order right now and uh now i'm having so much fun just talking zeppelin with you guys i do i should put this in there at least yeah it's uh it comes out september 7th in hardcover uh is is my publisher and it it is up for pre-order now and i think the biggest thank you that i have to give really really quickly is that I, i am very happy to report that the forward for the book beast uh is one of my personal heroes and the Biggest drummer of my generation, who is much more than that now. Dave Grohl did contribute the forward to the book. He is just a spectacular uh, multi-instrumentalist anyway. But when I was growing up, it was Nirvana first. He was my favorite drummer when I was a kid and now Foo Fighters, biggest band in the world. And uh, he did. He made the time to read the book and, and to contribute the forward. So I'm incredibly grateful to him. And I can't wait until people get to read the foreword that he wrote because no, it is not available just yet, but he, he wrote something very beautiful for Bonham at the beginning. So very excited to share that too.
3: So sell, tell us some of the other, uh, revelations, things that you found out that maybe the average person might not know. I mean, the hardcore Zeppelin fan might,
0: but as far as revelations are concerned, hardcore Zeppelin fans will recognize a lot of, of the tidbits of information in the minutia. And I understand that, but I think, uh, I do I do try and write for a general audience where Zeppelin fans will enjoy it, Bonham fans will be, you know I think will love having his full story in one place at one time and and have the new details interspersed throughout it plus about his kits, his cars and the anecdotes. It's the story of Zeppelin but it's also John's story all in one with with their trajectory, their career you know, the name of the book is beast, but that's not just, you know, for bad behavior. I meant the beast of his sound, the beast of the music industry itself. It's supposed to mean a few things. Plus it's, you know, Moby Dick is his famous solo and you know, it's a tip of the hat to Melville. So there's a few different reasons for that. What the revelations were to me is that he was a much more disciplined musician than you would ever realize from the, the lurid tales of being on the road that people associate with him. Uh, Bonham was the first person to show up at soundcheck. He was the first musician that was there to hear how his drums were going to sound before anybody else got to the stage. That was fascinating to me. The idea that he actually tuned his kit for, 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 you know, the, the how the sound was going to play in different, in different arenas and, in, in, you know, in different studios, he really was a musician's musician. And that goes back to his youth. He had great pitch, great sound and uh, great hearing, which I think made him, what would have made him an incredible jazz player if he played in a different genre. Learning learning about his musicianship and how serious he was with his craft and that he was always uh, listening to new drummers to see what was out there. All that was fascinating to me. And hearing about what a wonderful uh, dad and husband he was to hear the human side of it the biggest revelation to me is when you hear about the human side of the super the, the superhuman rock icon there are a lot more warmer stories about him and white his his loyalty to his friends and family has kept it, kept people still very protu- protective of his memory when i hear the happy stuff to me that's the best part my, But I will say this. Uh, the, the main thesis of the book itself, and this is what really, you had asked me at the very beginning, Denny, what, why I wanted to write about Bonham at all. I am a musician. I, I, I'm a, a keyboardist. I play jazz and blues piano, but I played, um, you know, uh, in rock bands also. And as a jazz fan, I loved the idea. When I had heard, friends told me that Bonham was a, a, a huge jazz guy. And I'm a huge jazz fan myself. How the idea of his playing technique you know played heavy but with jazz influence in a different context and with Jimmy Page's brilliance as a producer how if you add that together you all of a sudden have this really cool but obscure branch of lineage not just of blues but of jazz technique into what would become heavy metal the missing piece of the puzzle where you get jazz musicianship and what would become, you know, heavy rock and, and heavy metal. Yeah, I think the only other person in that category is
3: Anita's favorite, Ginger Baker.
2: Oh, there you go. I have to say, I, <laughs> yeah, well, I just the things he did. I mean, because I'm a big Buddy Rich. I didn't know as much about Gene Krupa as I did Buddy Rich, but yeah, I just guys. I just yeah, but now I'm, I have a whole new appreciation for John Bonham. So two things. First, because
3: when we a little bit ago, we were talking about the final tour, the 1980 tour. Yeah. I mean, we the only thing that we know is because we had Simon Kirk on and Simon was the guested with John Bonham on the date before the final date on that. Oh, that's tour. awesome. And that's he tells fantastic. us the whole story about rehearsing in in john's room on his bed and and you know he he just uh it was just unbelievable then of course when he died i mean simon went went nuts well
1: bonzo was the best hard rock drummer ever hands down i mean no one comes within a mile of him he kept great time he was fearless he'd do things that you think you know how how is he how's he going to do this he was the best
3: C.M., let me just uh, thank you for coming by and giving us an exclusive. I think this is great, talking about a new book on John Bonham before anybody else knows about it. And uh, we wish you a lot of luck with it. The the book is called Beast, John Bonham and the Rise of Led Zeppelin. C.M. Cushions goes by the name of Chad has been our guest. (laughs) And uh, we wish you a lot of luck with the book. And uh, maybe, you know, you can come back sometime after the book's out.
0: If, if, if I may, Denny and Anita, I, I'm so honored to have been on the podcast. I love, I love what you guys have been doing. I love that there's a real rock and roll podcast that's out there. I love the guests that you have. And it really is an honor to be able to talk about the book for the first time with both of you. So please know how grateful I am. Can't wait to come back. Thank okay. you. Man.
3: Thank you very much. Okay, so please keep in touch. Go to our website, therockpodcast.com. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. You can send us an email at hello at therockpodcast.com. Until next time.